At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Spritzes. Thank you for listening. Last August, the High Museum hosted the exhibition Picture the Dream, the story of the civil rights movement through children's books. Award-winning children's author Andrea Davis Pinckney co-curated the show. She spoke with me about the importance of approaching difficult topics such as prejudice and violence in less disturbing ways so that young children can learn about heroes of the movement. We'll listen back to Andrea Davis Pinckney later this hour. First, a new book about a civil rights icon for adult readers. The basis of all human rights today is the result of a movement that moved all of us. The lives and lifestyle of almost everyone in America today, regardless of color, was formed or decided by their action or reaction to the civil rights movement as led and declared by Martin Luther King, Jr. Those words were written by Reverend C.T. Vivian, one of the Freedom Riders and an important leader of the civil rights movement who died last July at age 95. His memoir, It's in the Action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior, was co-written with Steve Pfeiffer, who joins us now via Zoom. Steve, welcome to City Lights. I'm happy to be here, Lois. Please tell us how you came to collaborate on this memoir. Well, in around 2014, I was working on another civil rights-related book called Jimmy Lee and James. And that's a book about Jimmy Lee Jackson a black farmer from Marion, Alabama, and Reverend James Reeb, a white Unitarian minister who was working in Boston at the time, each of whom were uh, killed within a couple of weeks of each other in February and March of 1965 as they were foot soldiers in the voting rights movement at the time. And as you know, Reverend Vivian was in Selma and Marion, Alabama, during that period of time, working tirelessly to register people to vote 
and work for national voting rights legislation. And he was intimately involved, particularly with the life of Jimmy Lee Jackson. So I called him in Atlanta to interview him about what he remembered from that February of 1965, because he had actually spoken to a gathering at a church right before Jimmy Lee Jackson was shot to death by a white state trooper. And we hit it off over the telephone during this interview. He called me Doc. Now, I was (laughs) so flattered because here was one of my civil rights heroes speaking so intimately to me. I later learned he called everyone Doc, so it wasn't quite as special as I thought. But we, we developed a really nice relationship over the telephone, over a couple of interviews. And then I realized that here was this man who was 90 years old, who played such an important role in the civil rights movement and beyond. He was a real visionary. And uh, he had never written a memoir. So I approached him about doing this. And it, it he was busy. I was busy. So it took a couple of years before we actually started working on it. But That's how it all materialized. Hmm. Though essential to the civil rights movement and a tireless activist, C.T.'s name is not as widely known as some of the other leaders of the movement. Would you give us some background on his early life and career? Sure. He was born in 1924 in Boonville, Missouri, a very small town. And at that time, he lived with his mother and his grandmother, both of whom felt very strongly about two things, education and the church. And from a very early age, at his grandmother's knee, he was taught to read and learn about, as they call them, black men of mark, people that we might not know about, but who had made a real difference in African-American history. And he was also taken to the church in Boonville at that time, which he really loved. And that's where he developed both his love of education and the church. When uh, he was about five or six years old, their house was burned down by a, a neighbor who was looking for his common law wife, who was staying with the Vivians. And the family moved to Macomb, Illinois, which is in Western Illinois. And the reason they chose Macomb was because the schools were integrated there, although the black population was small, and because there was a university there. And that was very important to them because they wanted CT to go to college. So he grew up in Macomb, and it was kind of a a mixed childhood. He had a lot of wonderful white friends who wanted to include him in a lot of things, but they were often stymied by their parents. And the school itself, particularly as it got to high school, he would be told by a teacher, you won the role as the lead in the class play, but because you're black, all you can do is paint sets. So he was exposed to institutional and uh, social racism at that time, went to Western Illinois University, 
in uh, in town and again excelled in many things but wasn't allowed to be in certain clubs because of his skin color ended up leaving university and settled in Peoria in the mid 1940s where he got involved really for the first time in the civil rights movement with sit-ins in as early as 1947. Yeah. So that's the kind of early part taking him up into his early 20s. I smiled imagining a 94-year-old reminiscing with you about his third and fourth grade experiences. He makes the point that his true understanding of nonviolence came in the fourth grade. Right. He was a fighter. There were some bullies in his class. There were some white bullies and black bullies that uh, that he confronted, some of whom used the N-word against him, and he became a fighter. And at some point, he just realized that that was not the best way to handle conflict. And when he was just about the age you were talking about, Lois, he told his buddies, who also were kind of fighters, look, we're getting older, <laughs> but this is not the way to solve our problems. And really, from that point forward, it was action of a nonviolent manner rather than the confrontational using your fists that he expressed himself with the rest of his life. And at 94, he vividly remembered what happened in third and fourth grade, as he told you. Right. He, he also had a, a great story about something that had actually happened a little earlier when he had been out playing uh, in his yard and he thought he saw a ghost and he started to move forwards towards it and his instincts told him he shouldn't he shouldn't approach the ghost but he kept going forward anyway and when he got to what he thought was the ghost it turned out to just be some laundry some sheets that his uh, mother had hung out on the laundry line but it was a lesson he said that taught him that you don't run away from something that scares you you confront it. And he said that that actually served him throughout his life and was something he actually remembered when he had what is an iconic confrontation in the history of the civil rights movement with Sheriff Jim Clark in 1965 on the courthouse steps in Selma. Yes. You write, he could tell a story or tell off a racist antagonist with equal poetry. And Andy Young said he could turn a phrase like he could turn a cheek. Would you talk about the importance of books, of poetry in Vivian's life? I'm glad you asked me that, Lois, because even though the title of the book and his credo was it's in the action. In addition to being a man of action, he was a man of words. And as you hint, books were extremely important to him from an early age when, as I said, his grandmother exposed him to the first book he remembered, Men of Mark. And he began at a very early age collecting books that were important to the African-American experience. And by the time of his death last year, 
he had accumulated some 6,000 volumes dating back all the way to uh, colonial times and had some real treasures in there. Some of the earliest works by the should be known better, African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley. He had, I think, a second edition of of her first book and uh, many other very important works. He also was, as you suggest, a great lover of poetry, Claude McKay, Langston Hughes, and he was very able to quote their poetry. And that love of literature, that love of words, that love of poetry, I think translated into his own ability to move people with his own words. And as I'm sure you know, Dr. King called him the greatest preacher who ever lived. Author Steve Pfeiffer speaking about the new memoir of C.T. Vivian. It's in the action. Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. I've been speaking with the author Steve Pfeiffer about the new memoir of civil rights activist, the Reverend C.T. Vivian. Pfeiffer helped the then 94-year-old Vivian write the book called It's in the Action. Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. I asked what made C.T. Vivian such an extraordinary man of faith. He was, as I say, exposed to the church at a very early age and felt perhaps the greatest sense of community there that he felt anywhere, particularly in times when outside of the kind of safety of the black church, you were exposed to the kind of racism we talked earlier about in school and in the community at large. There was a safety in the in the church. He loved the ceremony. The early church he was in singing was so important. And he talked about the role of song always And I think that he came to believe that the Black church was really the launching pad for movement in general, and that if there hadn't been a separate Black church, 
from the white church, which was for reasons of segregation, primarily during that period of his formative years, that there wouldn't have been the ability for this community to come together, marshal its strength and energy to launch a movement. You mentioned his early work in Peoria, Illinois, that eventually led to civil rights activism in Nashville. How did the teachings of Gandhi inform CT's workshops on nonviolent resistance? Lois, I like to say that Nashville in 1960 was, if anyone wants to do the post-Hamilton musical, they should do Nashville 1960. There's a line in Hamilton early on where Alexander Hamilton marvels that all these amazing people are all in one spot in New York, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, Burr, etc. Nashville 1960 was exactly the same thing, but it was the civil rights movement, a group of great thinkers and, I would argue, revolutionaries. C.T. Vivian, Diane Nash, James Bevel, Marion Barry, John Lewis, Bernard Lafayette, and others. And they took workshops from James Lawson, who had been in India and had studied the teaching of Gandhi. They all were taking workshops in nonviolence from Jim Lawson, who was bringing them directly the teachings of Gandhi. And so there'd be these folks that were at these workshops that were learning how to put nonviolent direct action into practice. And they had these exercises in the workshops where they actually would be confronted with violence directed at them, and they had to kind of learn how not to react as most of us would react to someone physically abusing them by using the phrase we used a little earlier, turning the other cheek. So they actually had exercises in these workshops where someone would put a burning cigarette on their clothing and they had to react, learn to react in a nonviolent way or push them around or learn how to protect themselves if they were on the ground. And so in addition to this kind of physical training that they were going through, almost behavioral training, you might say, they were also learning the importance of the philosophy of nonviolent direct action. And what strikes me in so many of the situations that Dr. Vivian spoke about and Diane Nash has spoken about is that even when confronted with evil and abuse, and it seems like maybe you should turn back, you don't. It's almost like CT's experience of going towards those sheets on the laundry line early on, but you cannot back down. When Jim Clark pushes you down the stairs, you have to get up and go and confront that evil. When the Freedom Riders are beaten, they may turn around for a day, but then they get back on the buses and move forward. And that all stemmed from the training in those early workshops 
in Nashville led by Jim Lawson. I love that part of the book where Lin-Manuel Miranda's song from Hamilton is invoked. Did Reverend Vivian bring that up? No, that's a that's collaborator's license. Okay. C.T. Vivian makes the point that movements need more than justifiable anger. There needs to be strategy and a goal. How did this understanding of being methodical and organized help advance his goals? That's a really strong point that you bring up, Lois, because I think in looking at the contemporary situation as we were working on the book, one of, I mean, he was very supportive of of the movements that were Black Lives Matter and and other movements that, that were going on at the time. He felt that one of the the weaknesses, though, of those movements was that there wasn't a kind of centralized strategy. He was so respectful, so taken with the leadership of Dr. King, that I think he really wished that contemporary movements had strong centralized leadership and strategic thinking as opposed to being a little diffused. Now, even in the couple of years since we had those discussions, an argument can be made that, you know, people like Stacey Abrams and and others who have emerged and that in the various pods of uh, activism right now, there is strategy and leadership moving things forward despite the difficulties. But he felt that organization was necessary to keep your eyes on the prize and that diverting from the ultimate goal would only weaken the effort. The titles of each chapter are powerful. Chapter six, we're willing to be beaten. Would you discuss C.T. Vivian's encounter with Sheriff Clark and the horror that was Selma, Montgomery, and Birmingham? Well, the encounter with Jim Clark, the beefy sheriff of Dallas County, took place on February 15, 1965. And I would urge all your listeners to go to YouTube and just type in keyword C.T. Vivian, Jim Clark, and they can watch the encounter that you refer to, Lois. The people of Selma and that area, Marion, Alabama, which I think is sometimes uh, a forgotten little town, but was a very important at the exact same time in, in launching this voting rights effort. They, for for a few years, had been trying to launch uh, voter registration because they saw how important the the vote was for blacks to to get anywhere. And they hadn't been getting too far. So they asked Dr. King to come to, to Selma and make things happen. And the first thing he did was send Dr. Vivian there to scope things out to see if that was a a realistic venue for launching a Voting Rights Act effort. And we're talking late 1964, so it's 
after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, at a time when President Johnson, as supportive as he was in many ways of the civil rights movement, did not want to spend any more capital of his own on voting rights in the immediate future. So th they knew this was going to be an uphill battle, but they decided that Selma would be a good place to launch it after Dr. Vivian went there to scope things out, in part because often having an antagonist like a Bull Connor or a Jim Clark, where confrontation inevitably happened and that confrontation fortuitously or by design was filmed and broadcast to legislators in Washington, D.C., could have a great impact on their uh, on their decision-making as to whether or not to go forward. In Selma, they had uh, a, a group of people who wanted to register to vote, and they had the perfect antagonist that they could confront who really could be portrayed to most people as the face of evil. So over the course of the first six weeks or so in 1965, C.T., and Hosea Williams and others were leading efforts to register to vote, and they were, in general, being turned away at the courthouse. And on February 15th, CT led a group of about 100 people attempting to register to vote, peaceful. If you look at the photos, they're just like you see photos of, of John Lewis and CT, they're always wearing sport coats or suits with ties. It's very formal, very dignified. And they marched peacefully to the courthouse. CT went up. Jim Clark and some of his deputies are standing, blocking the courthouse doors. And CT speaks peacefully to Sheriff Clark about wanting to register to vote, to exercise their constitutional rights. And there are cameras around. And Clark, not wanting this confrontation to be caught on camera, tells C.T. to back off. And when C.T. doesn't, Clark pushes him down the stairs. Clark ended up breaking a finger by hitting him so hard. And C.T. gets up, brushes himself off, and goes right back up to Clark and talks to him about the nature of evil, about constitutional rights, about are you a Christian? He often had asked people in those situations how they could call themselves Christians and do what they were doing. And fortuitously, this confrontation is captured by network TV that happens to be there and broadcast on the evening news. And as Andy Young later said, Without that confrontation having been caught, we might not have a civil rights movement. So after the camera stopped rolling and there was that confrontation, CT was arrested, put in Selma jail, and actually beaten while he was in jail. And it just was a, a very seminal moment in the movement. Yeah. One of the defining moments of the Civil Rights Act. I think Andy Young said it took a lot of courage to get in Jim Clark's face, but if 
he hadn't taken that blow in Selma, we would not have had the Voting Rights Act. Oh. There's another interesting element to that. Three days later, CT went to Marion, as I referenced earlier, to speak to the people, about 400 people gathered there who were going to march one block from their church to the jail where SCLC operative named James Orange was being held for silly reasons, of course. So CT spoke to that crowd. And Jim Clark, for some reason, came the 30 miles from Selma to Marion, as did vigilantes, as did state troopers. After CT got done speaking to the assembled there, he had to get back to Selma. And so he was on his way back. And then the march, led by others, came out the front of the church And that's where vigilantes and troopers were waiting for them. That's where Jimmy Lee Jackson was eventually shot by the trooper. But Jimmy Lee Jackson's death is what spurred the idea for the march from Selma to Montgomery. Initially, just a a regular citizen said we ought to carry his body and put it on the steps for George Wallace to see his coffin. And that ended up getting adapted. But that was the impetus for the, the march. Later on, the learning that Jim Clark had been in the crowd with the with the Alabama State Troopers out of his jurisdiction, it was thought that CT may very well have been the object of the state troopers that they wanted to get him that night instead of just an ordinary citizen. That must have weighed on him in addition to the grief of this young man being murdered. Right. What amazes me, Lois, is the risks that these men and women took and were willing to take for the cause and then seeing certain of their comrades, you know, drop to the wayside, whether it's a black farmer like Jimmy Lee Jackson or a white minister like James Reeb, who came down for what's called Turnaround Tuesday after Bloody Sunday when Dr. King asked clergy from the North to come down. Reverend Reeb was beaten to death by three white supremacists who had Klan ties. But one thing that CT stressed, and I think is sometimes overlooked, is the role of the spouses in being so supportive of their, in those times, mostly their husbands, letting them go off to risk their lives. C.T. had five or six children at the time, and he would always, I mean, he considered his wife Octavia. They were married for 58 years until her death. His partner in this, she had been a a civil rights activist before he actually was a, a civil rights activist. And every time he said, you know, I'm thinking about going on the Freedom Rides, is that okay? She always said, you go I'll stay. I take care of the family. And it's an overlooked role. It wasn't overlooked by him, but underappreciated the role that the that the wives those days played in enabling their husbands to go out and do the business of the movement. And in fact, it was Reverend Vivian's wife who wrote 
a biography, I believe the first biography of Coretta Scott King. Yes, they were very close. It's important in discussing his legacy to mention vision. Would you talk about that program? I'm really glad you brought that up because for some people, the civil rights movement in their minds ends with the successful passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. But there was still much to be done. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Vivian realized was that a lot of young people, high school age and college age, had taken time away from school to participate in the movement and that they were going to have to go back to school or that others were going to want to go on to higher education and that they needed training, education, tutoring to be able to succeed in the world of higher education. He created Vision in Alabama. It's a little parallel to Freedom Summer of 1964, but he recruited tutors from colleges in both the North and the South to come and work with high school students and some college students to better prepare them to either go back to school or to move on to higher education. And this morphed eventually into Upward Bound, which is an incredibly successful tale of offering educational opportunities to African-Americans and such people as Oprah Winfrey, uh, basketball player Patrick Ewing, Angela Bassett, the actress, and others all went through this program, which began as vision with 700 students in Alabama for a few years by CT. And this was not the only, excuse the pun, but visionary program that he started. He moved on a few years later to create something in conjunction with Shaw University called Seminary Without Walls, which was particularly in these times of of COVID and the pandemic when there's so much remote learning going on. This was remote learning 50 years ago where people did not come to the campus to learn to be seminarians. They took their courses off campus in in their homes and only came to the university to take tests. So this was a man who was really a true forward thinker in every aspect of his life. You include a beautiful story that is from an article that appeared in the Daily Beast in 2014 by a former Obama staffer remembering an event in Selma in 2007. Would you talk about that? Sure. At that point, candidate Obama was in Selma for the Bloody Sunday commemoration, and he was speaking in Brown Chapel, which was the central place for the movement in Selma in the in 1965, and was the launching place for 
the march that became Bloody Sunday on March 7th, 1965. And Obama had been prepared by his staff to recognize certain people in the large audience that had assembled in Brown Chapel to hear him. And he looked up and what he said, look, that man way in the, in the back there, and this was not a name that was, was on the cards that he had been given by his staff. He said, that man back there, that C.T. Vivian, he was an important person, very important person in the movement. And Dr. King called him the greatest preacher that ever lived. And he went on to sing C.T.'s praises. But I think it summarizes both men pretty well, Lois. I mean, C.T., he was in his 80s. He hadn't sought out the limelight to make sure that Obama recognized him. He was just sitting in the audience with everybody else, not asking for any special attention. So there's his humility. And there's the kind of expansiveness and education and appreciation of history by then-candidate Obama to realize, A, that CT was in the audience, and B, what an important role he had played in allowing Obama to even be a candidate for president at that time. So it's, it's really a beautiful, beautiful story. It is a beautiful story. And later, President Obama awards C.T. Vivian the Congressional Medal of Freedom. Would you tell us the meaning of the title? I recently received a copy of notes that C.T. had written for a sermon that he was going to be given. I've become very close with the Vivian family, and they are absolutely wonderful. And Al Vivian, his son, as you know, has been active just these last weeks in terms of trying to combat the terrible law you have down there with respect to voting and voter suppression. But Denise Morse, CT's daughter, sent me a photocopy of his notes for a particular sermon. And on that is written about five times just in his pen. It's in the action. It's in the action. It's in the action. Remember, it's in the action. And he always believed that despite, as we talked about earlier, his love of words, that you had to get out and take your philosophy, take your grievance, take your honorable position out into the streets or into the halls of Congress or wherever you could effect change. You had to act just talking, despite being the greatest preacher that ever lived, was not enough. It's in the action that change is made. I had found a a quote where he said, we were happy to be miserable. (laughs) We made the white community miserable during the movement, and we were miserable too. But the difference was that we were happy to be miserable. And I just, I thought that was just wonderful. When we talked about the title, and this was after his passing, his family felt very strongly that It's in the Action summarized him and really was a credo they always heard him say. And I'm very glad that this has become 
the title of the book, but I do love the idea of saying that it's a little like John Lewis saying, making good trouble. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like, yeah, we made everybody miserable. We were miserable, but at least we were happy to be miserable. (laughs) Steve Pfeiffer, thank you for talking about It's in the Action, the memoir you co-wrote with C.T. Vivian, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. Thanks so much, Lois. Author Steve Pfeiffer, he co-wrote the new memoir of C.T. Vivian. The book is called It's in the Action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. C.T. Vivian passed away last July at the age of 95. Icons of the civil rights movement told through children's books, up next on WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Coretta Scott King, award-winning author Andrea Davis Pinckney, has written numerous books about African Americans for children and young adults including award-winning picture books illustrated by her husband, Brian Pinckney. Last August, I spoke with Andrea Pinckney, co-curator for the High Museum's exhibit Picture the Dream, the story of the civil rights movement through children's books. The children's picture book is perhaps the best vehicle for sparking conversations with parents, young people, about complicated issues. And as the world unfolds, as we see young people becoming activists themselves, as we look at history, as it relates to civil rights, we came together and we thought, what a remarkable way to present these topics to children and families in a museum setting. It's the first exhibition of its kind. There has never been a show that features the work of children's book illustrators illuminating specifically the history and path of civil rights. And it seems just like the the right time and the right moment and the perfect vehicle. Andrea, what is it about children's books that allow the reader to comprehend difficult topics in a less disturbing way. Well, Lois, think about the children's books that perhaps you grew up with, or I grew up with, or we all grew up with. I have fond memories of my own parents reading to me and talking about what we were reading. The beauty of a picture book is just that, the pictures. So when a child is experiencing a picture book, it's not just the words, it's the visuals. and Usually in most picture books, those illustrations are telling their own stories. So if a kid never reads the words, they can look at those pictures and experience an emotional reaction or attachment to what is happening. And again, with civil rights, how beautiful is that? I can sit with a child, we can look at the pictures, and we can have the visual story of civil rights in a way that you don't get in other vehicles and other kinds of books.
Now, oh, I wish these books had been around when I was growing up, when you were asking me about the books my parents read to me. Nothing with the depth and meaning that your books provide. I'm thinking about Boycott Blues, how Rosa Parks inspired a nation, which you wrote and your husband, Brian Pinckney, illustrated. And in addition to loving that you cast this story in the form of a blues song and that the narrator is this great hound dog who is singing the blues, you do not shy away from the scariness of what was at the core of her heroic gesture. The image that Brian Pinckney draws for Jim Crow is literally a crow. And it's a menacing, whirling presence on the page that's scary. And I think is just such a marvelous point for discussing what it was that Rosa Parks achieved. But I was hoping you would also talk about how you cast the narrative. Because in addition to evoking the blues, you also have what feels like the language of some church elders with "Uh uh-huh and child. Would you talk about that? Yes. Well, Boycott Blues, How Rosa Parks Inspired a Nation is a collaboration between myself and my husband, uh, illustrator Brian Pinckney. We had a lot of fun working on that book and it's for the reasons that you described, Lois. We made a decision very early that we wanted to invite young readers on a journey, on the journey of the Montgomery bus boycotts. And the best way to do that would be to provide them with language that has musicality, is accessible, is in some respects fun, because when they come on that journey and they're with us and they are experiencing the blues through the the guitar of of that hound dog, and walking those steps, then we can usher them into some of the more complex realities of what that boycott meant. Sit in. How Four Friends Stood Up by Sitting Down is another book that you collaborated on with your husband. Would you talk about how you approached telling what is essentially a violent story in a way that children can grasp and yet not turn away from. Yes, Sit-In, How Four Friends Stood Up by Sitting Down is the story of the 1960 Greensboro, North Carolina, Woolworth sit-in. Four college students go into a Woolworth's lunch counter. They refuse service because they're African-American. And so the book begins with a big, bold quote by Martin Luther King Jr. We must meet hate with love. We must meet hate with love. So when you open the book, you see that bold statement in big letters. 
and then in the spirit of inviting readers in so that they can sit at that lunch counter with the characters in the book, with the four students. Um, you know, there's the narrative refrain, they sat straight and proud and waited and wanted a donut with coffee and cream on the side. Those kids didn't budge, they didn't move. Until they were served, they refused. All they wanted was some food, a donut with coffee and cream on the side. And I know that when I share that book with kids who have read it again and again and read it with a parent or a caregiver, you know, they come back to me with that refrain. They sat straight and proud and waited and wanted a donut with coffee and cream on the side. So again, it's the musicality that brings them into the narrative and allows them to uh, experience some of the complexities of, of what happened on that day in 1960. Yeah, but you don't shy away from the terrifying aspect of what those four friends and others faced with coffee being poured down their backs and ketchup on their heads. And you have read this in public settings, I'm sure, as well as to young children close to you. What do they say? What has been the reaction when you get to that part of the story? Well, Lois, you're right. We tell the stories of civil rights, and we really tell the stories of civil rights. So there are the unpleasant aspects that young people, my, my husband Brian, the illustrator, and I really feel that we can't shy away from young people really need to know about that. So yes, in the book Sit-In, we talk about the scalding hot water poured on their heads, the ketchup on the shirts, the mustard, the spitting in the face, the pepper in the eyes. And when I talk to school children about that, I walk them through what happened. And I say, I want you to listen for a moment. If you left school today, you go with your friends, you're sitting down in a, in a restaurant and you glance over and you notice there are four people who are not being served and you're eating, what would you do? And I say to them, don't raise your hand, don't call out. Just sit with that question for a moment. Well, of course, all the kids raise their hands and call <laughs> out, you know, oh, I would do this, I would do that. And I say, let's just sit quietly for a moment and, and think about, I'm eating and there are four people over there who are not being served and they're not eating. I then invite them to raise their hands and they all, you know, it, it's such a testament to the, the hope of young people. They say, I would give them my food. I would, I would talk to the manager. I would talk to the waitress. I would walk out and, uh, you know, I challenge them a bit. I say, oh, come on. You would really go talk to a grown up. You know, what if your friends don't like you anymore? And then I flip it and I say, now you go into the lunch counter. You're hungry. You didn't have breakfast or lunch. Your stomach's growling. You're kind of not in a great mood because you're feeling so, you know, your tummy's so rumbly. And you sit there. Nobody brings you a menu. People are ignoring you. And all of a sudden, somebody pours scalding hot water down the back of your neck. They put ketchup and mustard. They squirt it all over that beautiful shirt. And they spit in your face. And they take the pepper shaker. And they throw that pepper in your eyes. What would you do then? And the, the hands don't go up so quickly. They do think about it. And they give me honest answers. 
you know, fourth graders tell me, I would fight back, I wouldn't allow that. There are fourth graders who say, I would sit there and I challenge them. I say, oh, come on, you're gonna sit there and let somebody pour scalding hot water on your head. And people say, yes, I would, because I don't want to start a violent protest. So these are things young people are talking about, thinking about, and through the art form of the picture book, experiencing. Award-winning author, Andrea Davis Pinckney. Her latest book is called Sit-In, How Four Friends Stood Up by Sitting Down. Sit-In became a play by Pearl Clegg, and now it's the Alliance Theater's first-ever animated feature. Sit-In is available for streaming on Alliance Theater Anywhere. Speaking of Pearl Clegg, last week, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms named Pearl Clegg Atlanta's first Poet Laureate. Congratulations. How lucky we are to have such a literary ambassador for our city. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, tomorrow at 11 a.m. Writer and filmmaker Jack Jewers will tell us about how he reimagined five of the world's oldest poems for the 21st century. Summer Evans is City Lights producer. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. You can find archived interviews and shows on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Thank you for listening to member-supported 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.